And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Welcome everyone to another podcast. Podcast 40. It's February and we finally have a chance to take a breath. 2017 was rough. There were devastating hurricanes in the Caribbean and the eastern U.S., mudslides in Colombia, and the flooding and mudslides in Bangladesh. There was the 7.1 earthquake in Mexico, and back here in the States, the whole West burning, especially the horrifying fires in the North Bay Area. Then this winter in our area, we had fire from Santa Paula to Santa Barbara, followed by a flash flood and mudslide that covered the 101 freeway. Not to mention the wars, shootings, famine, and terrorism. It turned out to be a crap year. I think we could all use a drink. So that's what we're starting with. Let's everyone have one. Uncle Frank, cheers. Cheers, sir. To a better 2018. As for tonight's show, February being Valentine's and all, we're going to have a few slightly askew Valentine songs. Also, an audio tour of a fantastic art installation and funhouse. An interview with an alien abductee from the 70s. An audio drama of The Phantom. And a discussion of the top 10 lamest superheroes in comics. And some more stuff, of course. So, this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. Let's get started. Larry, you guys ready in there? Go ahead and hit it, John. Testing. One, two, three, four... Guten Tag und willkommen bei Bolivar Speakerworks. Wir machen sehr viel Musik in Bolivar. Tatsache ist, dass so ziemlich jeder, der hier arbeitet, ein Instrument spielen kann. Und wir unterhalten eine firmeneigene Schule, die angefangen vom Notenlesen über Harmonielehre bis zum Flaschenhalsblues alles lehrt. Keiner von uns verdient seinen Unterhalt durch Musizieren, aber wir leben alle von der Musik. Ich glaube deshalb behaupten zu können, dass Musik ein Spaß ist, den wir sehr ernst nehmen. Spiegelt sich in der Art wieder, wie wir unsere Lautsprecher bauen. Wir freuen uns, dass Sie ein Produkt unserer Arbeit ausgewählt haben. Deshalb achten wir sehr darauf, wie die Lautsprecher klingen. Und wir wollen Ihnen dabei helfen, dies in Ihrer Anlage zu verwirklichen. Wir wissen auch, dass beinahe alle HiFi-Anlagen wesentlich besser klingen können, wenn geringfügige und sehr einfache Korrekturen am gesamten System vorgenommen werden. 
Bis zu diesem Zeitpunkt haben Ihnen die Hersteller eine Bedienungsanleitung in die Hand gedrückt und Ihnen gesagt, wie Ihr Produkt funktioniert. Keiner jedoch kam auf die Idee, Ihnen mit der gesamten Anlage zu helfen. Deshalb riefen wir eine unserer Betriebsbands zusammen. Back in 1973, Coworkers Charles Hickerson and Calvin Parker claimed that they were abducted by aliens while fishing near Pascagoula, Mississippi. Here now is an interview with Mr. Hickerson about that strange event. So, after we got off work, uh, probably at 4.30, I think, we were working nine hours a day. We, uh, I came home and uh, to get my fishing gear, and we wouldn't go out in a boat because uh, we were going to the banks of the river and fish from the banks for speckled trout and redfish. So we tried, we uh, got our bait, and we got to the river and tried several spots, and it had become dark by that time. We do quite a bit of uh, uh, fishing after dark, you know, down here in that time of year. So I don't know what attracted my attention where I had reached around and get more bait, which was sitting behind us, or uh, I heard some kind of zipping-like sound, like uh, air of a steam or something escaping from a pipe. And as I turned around, I saw some uh, two blue flashing lights, or either pulsating lights, I'm not sure. And it seemed like um, it, it was some type of craft, and it seemed like it was almost down to the ground then. In fact, it, was, it seemed to be about a, uh, a couple of feet, you know, above the ground, and it just hovered there. So Calvin had turned by this time, and, and uh, he was looking at it too. And really, I didn't know what to do. It just, it just, I was just spellbound there for a few minutes, just, and um, and then almost immediately, some type of opening appeared in the the end that was toward us, with what I assumed to be the front end. And the the light that had come outside, which is, it was real, real bright light. And three things appeared in the doorway uh, of the craft, and they seemed to just glide out out of the craft. They never touched the ground. They seemed to just glide across. It must have been 25 or 30 feet from us, or, or maybe a little further than that, and they they came to us, or just glided over to us, and, and uh, two of them took me by the arms from the side, and one took hold of Calvin, and, and uh, I seen Calvin go limp, and I didn't know it then, but he had fainted, so they uh, they carried me inside the craft, and and the light was almost blinding inside. In fact, for about three or four days, I had something like a bad welding flash in my eyes. And I can't, I can't recall or I can't remember just what was on the inside simply because the light was so bright that I just couldn't, couldn't make out what it was. But I didn't see any tables or chairs, and the room seemed to be round. Of course, that could have been because the light seemed to be glowing from the walls and the overhead and the ceiling. But they carried me, what, I guess, about the middle of the room, and we would just seem to be suspended there. I, I, I couldn't move. I didn't have any feelings, no sensation of, of, uh, of any feel. And it seemed to, something like a big eye. I, I keep referring to it as an eye because it was about size for small baseball. In the end, it was focused toward me. It was a different color or a different light. And it seemed to come directly out from the wall, and it came within six or eight inches of my face. And... And uh, it, it remained there for a, a few minutes, and then it, very few minutes, and then it uh, went over my entire body. I, I'm assuming it did, because when it went down like this, I seemed to be suspended there. And the next time I seen it, it was coming back up over this way. So I assumed that it went over my entire body. But it came back in front of my face and stayed there for a few more minutes, and then it seemed to just go right back into the wall. 
And these things, the, 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 the way they were holding me, I was elevated because they, they weren't as tall as me, and they were upright, and I was elevated like this, and I could see, I could move my eyes on the thing I could move, and I could see that they had released me. And I don't know where they went, whether they went outside the craft or, or another uh, room or compartment, but they didn't come in front of me. And they left me that way for for a few minutes. I don't know how long. And then after a while, they uh, I, I seen them. Then they, when they come back to the side of me and took hold of me again, and they carried me back outside the craft, and and we were still just gliding. I, I wasn't touching anything that I know of. And they seemed to just glide back out to where they had taken me from and put me back down on the ground. Well, when they did, I, I fell because my legs were weak and they gave way on me. And it was this time that I seen Calvin again. He was standing there. He was standing facing the river with his arms outstretched, and he was almost in shock. Uh, he seemed to appear to me at that time he was that something was wrong with him. But So uh, I was trying to, to, get, to make my way toward him, and, and uh, I was crawling. I couldn't get my legs to working. But before I got to him, they, I, the strength of what it was came back to my legs, and I was getting up on my feet, and I heard the, the, the same sound I'd heard before, a zipping sound. And I glanced around, and I saw the blue flashing lights, and, and it was the crack was just gone, just, just almost instantly. And I, 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 got to, I made it to Calvin, and I shook him and, and was calling to him, and it took me several minutes to get him where I could even even talk to him, you know, with any, any sense, and... And he was going in shock. And these things that um, that came out of the craft, they were about five or five foot four inches tall. And they didn't have a neck. Uh, the, the head seemed to come directly to the shoulders. And they had something that resembled a nose on a, on a face. And, and uh, about where ears would be was something that was similar to the nose, only it was a little longer. They seemed to come out almost to a point. And under the nose, there was something like a slit for a mouth, and, and uh, it was very wrinkled, and it, it, seemed, it appeared to me to be something like an elephant skin, but I don't know where it was, a, a metal or what it was, but it seemed to be very wrinkled with the wrinkles running horizontal, and in the area where the eyes should have been, uh, it was so wrinkled that, that I'm not even sure there was eyes. I, don't, I can't recall whether there was any eyes or not, and Calvin says he came. But um, anyway, after I I, brought, I got Calvin where I could talk to him. We didn't know what to do, and, and uh, we were almost scared to death. And we we first decided we wouldn't tell anyone, but the more we talked about it, the more we realized that we had to tell somebody. It was the military authorities, if nobody else. So we called Keesler Air Force Base, which is only about, it blocks you about 30 miles south of here. And I talked to someone there, and they told me that the Air Force didn't handle those things anymore, that we would have to go through our assurance department. Well, then we, we hesitated again because, you know, you go to the, the people just, something like that is not supposed to happen, and we knew we would probably be laughed at and ridiculed. But we, we talked it over again and decided we would call the sheriff's department, and uh, Sheriff Fred Diamond told us to come on over there, that we'd talk about it. So we stayed there for several hours talking with them and them questioning us. And uh, the sheriff promised me that it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't any news media know anything about it, that he would try to get, get it to the proper authorities, if he could find out who the proper authorities was, and have it investigated. So we went home that morning, and it was morning because they had kept us there quite late. And 
with assurance that no, uh, it, it wouldn't be any publicity about it at all. Well, we we went on to work that morning, uh, and by seven or eight o'clock, uh, there was telephones ringing, uh, you know, all over the shipyard. And I called Fred Diamond, and he said that he don't know how the story leaked out from the sheriff's department, but uh, you know that by that time the whole world knew about it. You said something that was like an eye ran up and down your body. Do you think it was like examining you? Uh, yes, it was some, it, it had to be some type of examination. Well, I say had to be, it, it, it appears to me that it would be. And after talking with a lot of scientists, and uh, uh, I'm convinced that it was something that was, it was some type of examination that it, that it, it gave me. Did you communicate with these creatures, these things? No, uh, and the only sound that they made, they didn't attempt to communicate with me. The only sound that, that, that they made, one of them, and I'm not even sure it come from, from, from one of the things, but it was some kind of mumbling-like sound, a low mumbling sound from one of them. But other than that, they, they didn't try to communicate. I tried to board the craft, but uh, it, I think now, and, and I have a, a reasons to believe, many different reasons to believe, these things were robots. They weren't beings. They were being controlled by beings from somewhere else. What made you think that, sir? Well, for, for as I just mentioned, several reasons. Uh, I didn't see any movement of, of, of uh, breath in the, in the chest area. I didn't see any movement of, of breath in, the, in the, the, the slit of the mouth here. It didn't move. And when they moved, they seemed to move as something mechanically. They could move their arms like this and in their shoulders. But their head didn't move, and when they moved, they seemed to turn as if mechanically. It appeared to me that they they had something that they were programmed, you might say, to do something. They had something specific to do, and they just simply done it, and their attention wasn't distracted one way or the other. Did their examination of you hurt you? No, no. The only only physical pain that I had is when, when they took hold of me there on the banks of the river, the one that took hold of my left arm, and this arm here, just instantly I felt pain, but it was gone just that quick. And then once the boy, uh, aboard the craft, at one time, I felt this, the same uh, pain in the same area again, but it was just instantly. And that's the only physical pain that I had through the entire thing. Now, approximately how long do you figure you were in the craft itself? Well, I'm not sure, because I don't wear a watch. A watch won't keep time on me. And Calvin didn't have a watch. And we, uh, we've we tried to go back, and uh, I've tried to go back and, and try to figure the time out from the time that, that we left the area going to call it uh, Keesley Air Force Base and all. And it could have possibly been as long as, as um, well, it could have been anywhere from 30 minutes to, to an hour, and probably even longer than that. Can you give us some idea of the size of this craft that you were suspended within? Well, the craft... Uh, let me explain now. The angle that I was looking toward the craft, it's hard for me to say, which I can't say, whether the craft was round like a disc or whether it was long or oblong like a cigar. Because I, the, it was, it was. let me give you an example. Like the craft was sitting here. We're assuming that this is the front end of it. That was the end that was toward us. But I'm looking at it from this angle. So all I can see is what, is this side and what I'm assuming to be the front and maybe it's a little bit of the back. So I can't be sure whether the craft was was round like a disc or was long or oblong. 
but it appeared to me that it was about 30 or 40 foot long and maybe uh, 8 or 10 foot high. Just before where the opening appeared, there seemed to be two small windows up toward the front and the top, two small windows, and directly behind the windows was the revolving or the pulsating blue light. Now, you said you attempted to talk to these creatures. Could you not talk, or could your vocal cords not work? Well, uh, that's hard to explain. I know I was saying something, but for some strange reason, I couldn't hear myself. You know, you can hear yourself talk. But uh, I know I was either saying something or trying to say something, but I didn't hear myself talking. Now, when they brought you back outside, they deposited you on the bank where you were fishing before with your friend. That's right, almost the exact spot, yes. What kind of shape was he in? Um, he seemed to be, it, uh, when I seen him, he seemed to be going in shock. I've seen many men in shock in the Korean War. Um, and he seemed to be going in shock. Because it took me it took me several minutes to even get in where I could, could talk to him to make any sense. So once the craft deposited you and Calvin back on the bank without any further ado, it just departed? It departed, that's right, it departed. Now, you said you went to the authorities. Did the Air Force at that time uh, cite any radar sightings in that area at that time, unusual sightings? Well, I'm not sure because the Air Force won't talk about those things. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they didn't even want to talk. Or, you know, they didn't want to talk with us about it. The only connection that we had, uh, you might say, with the Air Force is the next day, it uh, it dawned on me that we might have been uh, contaminated with radiation or something. So I, we were at the sheriff's department, and I asked the sheriff if we could be examined for radiation because I, I was quite worried. I'd been with my family. I'd been in contact with many people. So uh, uh, Detective Huntley had called Keesler Air Force Base, and they said, yes, they would check us for radiation. So they carried us out there, and they checked us. Uh, uh, they swabbed our, our shoes, our clothing, and, and, and under our fingernails and all, and they put it, you know, in, in little tubes, and I don't know what happened to it, but they said there wasn't any uh, sign of radiation, and at that time, we asked for, you know, asked to talk with the intelligence at Keith Air Force Base, which well, that was granted to us, and we went in the conference room with a, uh, a bunch of colonels, and, uh, um, and of course, uh, the D Detective Huntley was there, and uh, we, uh, we told them what happened to us, and they seemed... Uh, uh, very interested, and uh, they told us that a report would follow, which never did. So the Air Force, I, I think they just, I don't know, they, they just uh, keep hands off and things like that. Kind of busted on the drug. For some strange reason. Yes. Have you been examined by any psychiatrist or put under any hypnotic trance to relate your story? Yes. Uh, on, this happened on Thursday night, on Saturday morning. Dr. Alan Heineck uh, from Northwestern University and Dr. James Harder from the University of Offen Berkeley, uh, they came to Pascagoula, and they they questioned Calvin and me uh, in in length, and we were placed under under hypnotism with uh, a local psychiatrist uh, present, uh, along with a medical doctor present, and Dr. Heineck and Dr. Harder. Yes, we was hypnotized and questioned. What was the result of that? Uh, Dr. Harder and Dr. Heineck were, were convinced that, um, that, it, that, you know, that, that it was, that it actually happened to us. And then I might add that uh, we, uh, we, we asked uh, the sheriff that night, uh, 
because after we decided to tell the sheriff, certainly we wanted to, to, to prove to him that it did happen. So we asked for a lie detector test. They didn't have the facilities here in Jackson County. So later on in the, I think it was either the latter part of October or the early part of November, uh, Calvin had had another breakdown because, I think, because of this. And he was in a hospital in, in Jones County. Uh, I took a polygraph test uh, here in Pascoola, uh, which proved that, that I was telling the, the truth. Were you afraid during this entire thing? I certainly was, and, and uh, uh, I can explain that. Uh, normal, what I consider normal fear to be is something that, that, that you expect, you know. Just normal fear is something that, that you expect here on this earth. But this was something that uh, wasn't supposed to even exist. And it's fear that you can't even explain. And shortly after, well, for a few months, I didn't, I couldn't sleep, and I couldn't eat. I, uh, it was on my mind all the time. But the fear's all gone now, and uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's just not as much fear as it was before. I can see by the look on your face that you've got ringworm. I'm very sorry, but I have to tell you that you've got ringworm. It's a very common disease. Actually, you're very lucky to have ringworm because you may have had something else
shouted. Who was singing these strange words? Was it another robot or some strange life form from the distant past when he was a young robot and people still made the occasional attempt to like him? He couldn't make it out at all, so he pushed a few buttons again. Today's superheroes are a greater part of mainstream than ever before. It's like a superhero bonanza now. Yeah. They're attract- they got a what, big audience on Netflix, on the regular television, and all the box office, the top grocers, they're all superhero films, it seems like anyway. Yeah. Well, usually, all these heroes that are highlighted in the media, they're the ones that have always had a degree of popularity in the comic books. Your Batmans, your Supermans, yeah, those exactly. kind of things. Yeah, yeah and, and even the minor ones. And, and, the, and the more obscure, they were always kind of popular first in the comics. Well, that's why they would risk the money on them. They're the characters that have risen to the top, but there's plenty more of their brothers and sisters that have not fared that well. Yep, Pl- <laughs> plenty of them, trust me. Legions of them, and we found a bunch of them here. Some of them, they just weren't lucky enough to capture the imagination of the public. But others, they deserve their obscurity. But even so, we got a soft spot here for those people in the bottom rungs, those superheroes. And we think there should be some light shown on them. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to have the top ten lamest superheroes. All right. (laughs) James has number ten. My number ten is a superhero named uh, Dollman. (laughs) Yes. All right. And he was actually created by Will Eisner. What? Under the pseudonym William Irwin well, no Maxwell. Yeah, the pseudonym, that's for sure. And, and Lou Fine. All right, so okay. there's two. Uh, and he debuted in Feature Comics number 22. Uh, his vital statistics, Frank, six inches in height, and his inseam, three inches. <laughs> What's unique about him is he was a man, and he could make himself doll as small size. as a doll size. <laughs> And that was his only superpower. That's it. Otherwise, that's it. He's got nothing else, man. Ant Man could do the ants. 
And also, he was strong, like strong as a normal man, but small. But is that true with him? Yeah, th- this kind of is a little bit like that, because he used to knock people out as a doll. So I'm assuming okay. that he could keep his man strength. But uh, anyways, the superpower is he could shrink. He can't do anything else. Uh, he did have a sidekick, though, and it was his girlfriend and sidekick named Doll Girl. <laughs> I thought that was, you know, very, fairly original. That is, they don't, you know, there's very few of them where um, their girlfriend is the sidekick. No, yeah, and and uh, and it's funny because the way that she got her superpower was by doing mental exercises. I, I, literally, this is what it was said. Like, oh, I did some mental exercises and I wanted to be one with my boyfriend so i learned how to shrink or something (laughs) and how did he get his power explanation it it, it, there was like no origin story and the thing about this is that it was kind of popular too it wasn't like it was you know what what, years was whatever it was um in in the uh in the 50s okay so silver age the villains that he fought were uh were some shifty characters uh uh mademoiselle de mortier the cadaverous corpse, the grotesque vulture, the leering skull, and then best of all, dress suit. <laughs> dress suit. Dress suit was the name of, of his arch enemy, and it was literally a murderous, but bodiless set of formal. Clothes. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> He's the only one without an adjective. His enemy, and he rode a Great Dane as his steed. Doll man when he's a doll side. <laughs> when he's doll side, he has a Great Dane. So as you can imagine, he did a lot of shrinking, <laughs> a lot of hiding into places and finding things like a you know like a sleuth, like, and, like only a doll can, like only a doll can, and and solving crime, just making the world a better place six inches at a time. <laughs> <laughs> if we start at ten, I don't know where we go from here. That one. Well, I got my number nine on the lame scale. And it's actually a duo, and they're they they're sort of more interesting than most superheroes too, at least the ones in the golden age, because unlike characters, um, the other ones they had a trust fund, or they were a millionaire, or they had good jobs. These guys never had a steady income. They would crisscross the United States uh, on the small time pro wrestling circuit, living hand to mouth, and they just run into villains willy nilly. They never went looking for them. And these are Nightmare and Sleepy. And their real identities is Bob White, and he was a professional wrestler. I think their true identities is Frank and James. <laughs> yeah, well, as far as the money is concerned. He had a teenage manager. He's the, he's the sidekick, Terry Wake. And they became costume heroes, well, pretty much by accident. But first, we're going to talk about their creators. Because they were, they were better creators, well, just like yours, than they should have been. There was Alan Mandel. And Dan Barry. And Alan worked on Young Robin Hood and Lucky Star. And he wrote on Captain Arrow. And Dan Barry, he was more famous. He drew for Doc Savage. And he did covers for Captain Midnight. And he assisted Bern Hogarth, that great illustrator, in the comic strip, in the funny papers for Tarzan. And then Dan took over Flash Gordon strip. And he also did the 1980s poster <laughs> for Flash Gordon. And oh, in the, that's cool. And in the 80s, that's he did the uh, the Amazing Spider-Man uh, comics, you know, for Marvel. So it is proof, both these ones, that just because you have good people doesn't mean you have a good product. Oh, I have more, more proof for this. <laughs> it's coming. Anyway, back to Nightmare and Sleepy. 
in their origin comic, Bob White had been in a wrestling in this city. And afterwards, both he and Terry, they go out to a, a charity masquerade ball, basically. And Bob wore this muscly skeleton suit that was painted with fluorescent, so it glow. And uh, Terry dressed in a sort of pajamas with a skull and crossbones on his chest and a mask. And then top it off, he had a little red riding hood and, and shawl. <laughs> and the crazy thing, these are look, those sound like great wrestling suits. But uh, Bob, when he was in the wrestling um, ring, he just wore a tuxedo. <laughs> so he had a better suit as, the, uh, as his costume. Anyway, there was this crazy criminal called the Checker, and he attacked the city, and everyone went scrambling, and so did Bob and Terry. They ran for their lives, but they, they kind of forgot they were in their costumes, and they were amazed that people react to him because when they got away from the situation and the party, people were, like, freaking out, like, why are you like a skeleton? Anyway, they, of course, returned and with their in their costumes, and uh, but they decided they were going to stop the Checker. And this time as Nightmare and Sleepy. Was, was it at like the, uh, you know, the Sam's Club or something? The checker? Or what? <laughs> no. What's, what was the he's, checkers thing? He's the checker like checkers. And he had like a checker hat. And, and I don't know what he, well, he did, had amazing things. Like he'd make a building disappear. So I don't know how, what it had to do with checkers. But anyway, that was his name. So anyway, that's how that fighting team was born. And neither of the heroes ever had any powers at all. But like I said, the villains, they did. Because the checker, he could make uh, buildings vanish. And there was a mirror-faced man who stole people's faces. And there was another guy called the Robber Baron. He was this 300-year-old dead man. <laughs> so an old nightmare and sleepy could do is use their fists. Anyway, the... They wrestle a little bit. <laughs> well, that's true. He could give some <laughs> nice moves, throw them on some tags. The comic book company that, that created these guys, they were kind of wishy-washy. And it, it wasn't too long before they gave Nightmare a new costume. And this costume looked suspiciously like Batman, <laughs> except oh, it had right. a big N on its chest. And um, and unfortunately, it wasn't long after that that um, Nightmare was all alone. He had lost Sleepy. And by this time, they had changed his whole character, and he was kind of this magic genie-like character that came out from a cheap detective's um, cigar, his homemade cigars. And uh, and this all took place in 17 issues because <laughs> that's all they had from beginning to end. So, and that was kind of a noble ending, um, you know, for a working class hero, but, uh, but still lame nonetheless. So that was number nine. And James, what's number eight? Number eight is a superhero called uh, Funny Man. Okay. And... Uh, as we were discussing previously about famous people creating lame things sometimes, <laughs> this was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. The Superman guys. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> anyway, Funny Man came out in Funny Man number one in 1948. And actually, it's kind of funny because uh, they were in the grips of a lawsuit with DC Comics over Superman's rights. And oh, they, and they had sold. They 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 and they ended up losing the rights. To, you know, again they lost. It's funny because they lost the rights, and and really the only way they got anything for anything is there was the first time the copyright came up, they sued them, and the second time they sued them, they lost both. But uh, they did a like a, a a campaign, and some of the other you know authors got with them, and they did a, like a, a, 
a campaign, you know, with with uh, just regular people, and they ended up getting a a, a pension out of it. Well, that's good. Yeah. Thank goodness. It was like forty thousand dollars a year or something. And, and oh, uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, and it was in the seventies or something, sixties and seventies. So oh, they didn't sell yeah. it till then. They, well, yeah, that, oh, no, no. Well, that's when they. But needed. anyway, so the first time around, this is when they created Funny Man. Maybe their minds were on something else. <laughs> that's what I was getting at. I apologize. Yeah. Um. Anyways, uh, you know, let's first let's let's uh, talk about his weapons. I think because that, okay. that's a good place to start. So there was the seltzer bottle of justice. Oh my gosh! And and uh, you know that was something that he used often. The exploding cigar of virtue, and not last but not least, the banana cream pie of right. Right. The crazy thing of this is they all sound like parodies, and none of these are parodies. Yeah, the Daffy Daredevil, as he was called, in fact, was none other than Larry Davis, a popular television comedian. And he looks a, li- a lot like Red Button. I mean, Red Skelton. It, it's funny. I, I, I wonder if it was. I don't know if Red Skelton was working in the forties on television. Well, he was but, only on radio. So yeah, I knew but, he did movies. But, so. but but he definitely definitely looks like him. Anyways, he rode uh, a uh, a gadget loaded tricycle around town, <laughs> oh my gosh. and and flew in his jet jalopy. He lived in his funny manner, and the funny manner had like all these traps and like gags to. To catch criminals if they tried to come in, and so it, they they just took like every chance they got to do all kinds of gags, and <laughs> like you know things that were you know like a clown thing. He had a, a punching a, 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 a you know boxing glove that would come out of his chest, and and a squirting flower and a buzzer that would knock people out. All, all kinds every how many, everything. Everything How many can. issues did this thing last? This it, it lasted six comics. Okay, <laughs> very good. Um, and he fought villains such as Doc Gimmick, Slippery Slim, uh, M- uh, Mosher Shevel, and Leapin' Lena, and Nud Nud Nick No Good Nick <laughs> Nick No Good Nick Nud Nud No Nud Nick Oh No Good Nick. He was Czech, apparently. I don't know. But uh, anyways, six issues, and it kind of fell apart from the, from the beginning. From the beginning, but, but simultaneously or concurrently with the when the the, uh, the uh, court case fell apart. So oh. anyways, it wasn't their best work. They were they were occupied. Was but, this for DC? No, it was for a different comic, and oh, they okay. and they actually got got a cease and desist letter because it said from the first issue said from the creators of Superman and they made him take it off there because I can't Superman's believe that they the, got the rights to say that I don't uh, know how that would work today but no they didn't get the rights to say it they just put it no no I mean why why would you not have the right to say that because because um, it's true <laughs> you don't have the rights to, to them being the creators they, yeah so anyways they, they took it off those other five issues don't have from the creators of Superman very nice all right, now we're to number seven, and this is US-1, as in the highway. And this is the only hero that I've ever come across that's also a super truck driver, basically. And the creators were Al Migram, and he was the the writer. He And um, he also did pen, pencil and pen and ink work on uh, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, and the West Coast Adventures. And the guy who did the penciling for this uh, was Herb Trimper, and he worked in the 70s in the Hulk comics, and he was the first artist to draw the Wolverine, which I own that comic. Nice. <laughs> and there were other artists, too, 
throughout the run, and uh, including Steve Ditko. So all these comics so far have all had good people involved, but somehow it falls apart. This comic came about because Tyco, you know, the toy company, they wanted to promote a, a line of slot car, racing trucks, basically, under the name US-1. So they went to Marvel to order some promotional comic series. And it was the 80s, which is the golden age of the toy company marriages with, you know, kid shows and comics. So uh, a lame hero was born from those guys. <laughs> Thank you, George Lucas. Well, he, he wasn't the Tyco. <laughs> no, but he, he made some wonderful toys, but that's how it got started, let's be honest. <laughs> Star Wars toys are dope, but... He began all that. Yeah. The first comic book is told by Ed Wheeler, who's a truck driver, and he's the mentor of Ulysses Solomon Archer. That's the, that's uh, And it's U.S. for short. That's the character. <laughs> and U.S.'s parents were killed in an accident. And so friends Ed Wheeler and Wide Load Annie raise, <laughs> raise U.S. and his brother, brother, whose brother's name was Jefferson Hercules Archer. And Jeff grows up to be a truck driver, but U.S. goes on to be a whiz kid in college, and he's excelling both in academics and sports. But what he really wants to do is get his very own rig like his older brother. So now we're cutting to both the brothers on a road trip during U.S.'s uh, summer vacation. And they're going in this uh, lonely road, and a black uh, truck and trailer uh, drives them off the road and over this cliff. And Jeff dies, but U.S. climbs free of the wreckage. And he, he gets up, and he, and he sees this um, silhouette of a man laughing hideously. And, and he's the guy that ran him off the road. And surrounded by him are these silhouettes of these unearthly minions. And this guy was the highwayman, and he becomes his, his main villain. But, um, so U.S. goes to the hospital, and his head is operated on, and they replace the whole, pretty much all the skull but the front with this super strong but light alloy. And then they cover the flesh back up over this, and the hair grows. So he got a super hard head. And later on he discovers that if he puts his tongue up to a filling, he can pick up CB signals on his head too, so he can hear <laughs> all the CB radio calls from all over the place. And so naturally then, what, what does he do? He, he outfits a big rig truck like a Batmobile, and he heads out in search of the highwaymen. So, and now we have officially their superhero truck driver. And U.S. had other villains. He had Baron Von Blimp, and he was a, and his neo-Nazis. And he had some aliens that earned, um, they learned their English from a, a, listening to CB lingo. So they always talk like a CB radio guys. And uh, he also had friends like this hot girl named Tearing Down the Highway O'Connell. So all the people's names hey, are you these can have weird... her. I'll take Wide Load Annie any day <laughs> for the week. Eventually, U.S. ends up in space. And his alien Fred said it best, what the universe really needs are truckers, men of courage and intelligence, who are strong-willed and independent, men who could stand up to the rigors and most especially the solitude of space. So U.S. took up the challenge. He fixed up the U.S. one to make it a, a space-worthy um, cargo vessel. And he brought his friends along and they formed this uh, space station sort of truck stop. <laughs> and so, and again... All this happened in 12 issues from May of 83 to October of 84. So here's another short life for another great lame hero. Nice. So, James, are we at six now? or what We are, are at six. And six is a, a um, 
is a notable superhero, even though he's only been in like a total of three comics. No, what's this one? And it's called Arm Fall Off Boy. <laughs> what the heck? His first appearance was in the Secret Origins, Volume 2, Number 46, and he was drawn by Kurt Swan. Known as Floyd Belkin, this superhero has the ability to detach his own arms his and his limbs, his legs too, and use them as blunt force objects. But you said it's in a in, a, in another issue, so it wasn't his own comic. No, not have his own comic. But so he's, they made him up for that origins. But thing? he's so check it out. He is a superhero, and he was uh, he's introduced as an applicant for the first legion. Oh, and so he tries out for the first. He was legion. a cameo. He's a cameo. He tries out for the first legion, and he. Uh, Sadly, was rejected. <laughs> so when does he but, next come? But he comes. He comes in again. Uh, he makes a reprisal because they're having another trial. He tries in out another again. comic. In another comic, and he tries again. No, with the first Legion comic. So, oh, okay. And then he tries out again, and he makes it to as one of the five finalists. And as he is going for the last thing that they have to do, he gets nervous. And literally falls apart. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. And therefore, he does not get into, get the, into Legion. the Legion. But, 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 he was at the, at the end of the issue. He's he's joined. He has joined another super league, <laughs> and uh, they make reference. I don't know. Somebody has a as a uh, a love for for this man, but because <laughs> they they made him, they made sure that he was taken. Care at the end of the episode. So now that's just in one comic. There was two comics. So, okay. So, so what's he, the third comic? So and I apologize. I said two or three, but I meant I meant two. Times. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So two, two, uh, two times, both trying out, both times <laughs> trying out for the first Legion, uh, and and being unsuccessful. It's like short and sour <laughs> his career, basically. But since he did join another league, they made sure that he was. He is technically a superhero. <laughs> Is a superhuman ability yeah. to take his arms off. He's not just a freak. <laughs> and cripple people with him. So there you go. All right. Now we're up to number five. And uh, this brings us to Music Master, the master of music. This character was first introduced in Famous Funnies in number 92 back in 1942. And they had an ad in that, in that magazine. And it said, Music Master, which will take the comic book field by storm. Nothing like it has ever been presented before. Unquote, and maybe there was a good reason for that. The comic was first drawn by Bill Everett, and he's the guy that created the Submariner and he co created Daredevil. Uh, but the comic was actually, um, he drew it. The actual creator was Stephen A. Douglas. And Stephen A. Douglas is a seminal guy in comic books because he was one of the artists that came from the comic strips into the comic books when they were first just copying what was in the strips and putting them in book form. And uh, and then he became editor of Famous Funnies magazine, which was the very first one to do this, first of all. And then it became, under his editorship, the very first comic that eventually had only original strips and nothing from. From newspapers. Yeah. So... Um, and he, when he did covers for Famous Funnies, 
he would always put just his initials. So it would be Famous Funnies, and, and underneath it would go Sad, because it was S-A-D was his initials. He got a big kick out of it, so that's what he'd do. I mean, he's sad. Anyway, Music Master appeared in A Cousin of Famous Funnies, which was also published by Eastern Color. And it was called Regular Fellers Heroic Comics, and it was number 12. And that comic has a weird origin. Regular Fellers was a comic strip from the New York Telegram about the antics of some kids. And it became pretty popular. Um, you know, it was one of the ones that were reprinted in comic books. It also turned into a radio show. and had two cartoons made out of it and a feature-length film. So, But there was also an organization with the same name. It was called Regular Fellers of America. And that was an organization set up to develop... Um, Competitive sports for the summer for 12 to 15-year-olds just to keep them busy. And they wanted an official publication, so they went to Eastern Color. And Stephen Douglas was tasked to publish Regular Fellers Heroic Comics, which had reprints of Regular Fellers comic <laughs> in there. And it also had a bunch of other adventure stories. So in number 12, there was Music Master was born in that. Now, Music Master... Um, he was a musician and a teacher, and um, he got his powers while he was trying to save uh, this famous, um, oh my gosh, what was his name? Antonini, and he was a famous violin maker, and he just happened upon him one night during this mugging, and he tries to, uh, he thinks it's a mugging, it's actually a kidnapping, and he thwarts it, but in the process, he gets stabbed with a violin bow <laughs> in, oh, into his chest. And Antonini grabs him back and hauls him off to his shop. And he revives Wallace by using this Egyptian pan flute called the Pipes of Death. And with this instrument, Antonini could play a tune that creates the same um, sound waves that match with the vibrations of the human body. And so somehow that cures him. Wow. But it just doesn't cure him. It gives him superpowers. So... He can now disappear in a flurry of musical notes. He can fly through the air using the path of a, any musical sound. He can use music as a force field or a weapon or use it to tie people up. And he can even control musical notes to crawl off the page and do his bidding. So, and he needs all these powers because Antonini is eventually killed. Uh, and he's killed by the kidnappers. They were after his famous varnish formula for his violins. And so... Wallace goes out to seek revenge, and he catches the murderers, but then he, he continues on with his superherodom. He goes on to battle agents of the Axis powers, of course, and other uh, villains. And then eventually he gets a sidekick called Downbeat, and he's a hep-talking kid that always says Daddy-O. And for that alone, it deserves to be number five in our lamest superheroes. <laughs> so anyway, James, what's number four? Number four, we're going to go off the beaten path a little bit because I found a supervillain oh, okay. <laughs> that is uh, quite lame. All right. So what's this? This supervillain's name is Asbestos Lady. Oh, my. Right. And she first appeared in Captain America, number 63, and then also in the Human Torch comic. I was going to say. Number 27. It needs to be yeah. the villain of the Human Torch. Right. So... Yeah, she ends up being the 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 uh, villain. Uh, I mean, for the, the the Human Torch, she her real name is Victoria Murdoch. 
uh, and she is an arsonist and a racketeer by trade. <laughs> and how is but she an asbestos? She was a brilliant chemist. Oh, always. with a criminal mind. She created a fireproof suit lined with asbestos, which made her impervious to the human torch. But not to cancer. No. <laughs> so. And oddly enough, thanks for uh, blowing the thing. Oh, she no. She literally dies of cancer at the end. They, they carry her all the way up into the 80s, and they make weapons oh to her. Oh, my dying, gosh. Dying of cancer. Yeah. So let's get back to it, and we'll, we'll oh, get that I'm sorry for blowing that. No. The fact that this is a blatant commercial for asbestos is not lost on me, right? But it was like, you know, I think everything was uh, so amazing to people, you know, rubber and, and plastic, especially. Oh, yeah. And all the stuff that and came asbestos. With, with the war, you know, asbestos, you know, DuPont, probably, like all the stuff that, that seems commonplace today was just like miraculous to people. So in a way... It did seem like it was a superpower thing, you know, like, oh, asbestos is fire retardant. That's awesome. We're going to have asbestos, ladies. It's better than but, a Batman suit, but which is it, just uh, leotards. Yeah, but it's still lame. <laughs> <laughs> she wielded a blowtorch, and uh, and she would, she would uh, you know, set things on fire to ward off police. And, and sadly, and maybe positively the way you look at it, in 1990, she fell victim to her own success and died of cancer. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. A fitting end to a lame suit and a lame lady. That kept her a long time, clear to the 80s. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. I, I, you know what, she... she um, Not lame enough to be yeah, canceled. Yeah, I, I mean, it was one of those things where, uh, you know, she wasn't in all the, like a lot of episodes or whatever, but then they just probably decided to... To do it because, like in the eighties, they everything found you know everybody found out that all those amazing products we just talked about are <laughs> dangerous. Yeah. And so they go, "Oh, wait a minute, we got to bring a specialist lady back just for this, just to kill her. It'll be amazing." All right, now we're to number three, and this is Prez, the first teen president of the United States, and he was brought into the DC comic universe back in August September of nineteen seventy three, and on the cover it says it all. Um, the f- number one issue that shows the Prez going down this major street, it's, it's his, must be his inauguration parade. He's in his open convertible, and he has his big speakers blaring out, Prez says, cool it, man, you had your chance. And along with the Prez in the car, there's a bunch of counterculture types, including someone playing guitar in the back, hail to the chief. And above are all these banners that say, 18-year-olds vote. And, and uh, <laughs> anyway... Um, and in the crowd, they have some people cheering, but most of them are angry, and they're throwing eggs and bricks at him. <laughs> so now you go inside that issue, and you find out that you've been kind of hoodwinked a little because the Prez is actually 21. He's not a teen- uh, teenager. So I guess they couldn't bring themselves. But he was to- voted in by 18 Oh, that's right. That's true. <laughs> His alter ego was Prez Rickard, and he's a boy in the town of Steadfast. And that's a place that had hundreds of beautifully clapped clocks all over the town, but they never, not one of them told the same amount of time. So he went around one by one and fixed all the clocks. And then, <laughs> that, that's so super. And that was his success. And uh, it was noticed by this local politician crook, Boss Smiley, who sees the opportunity to, to get this kid and, you know, use him for his own means. You know, boss clown boy so, and sad eyes as well. Yes. Like... <laughs> anyway, Smiley convinces Prez to try to become the youngest senator in history. 
And with his help, he does become that. And then later on, Bosch Smiley helps usher in a constitutional amendment to lower the presidential age requirement. From 35, as it yes. shows today. <laughs> <laughs> and so Pres Pickard, uh, Rickard, I mean, becomes the youngest president in U.S. history. Eventually gets wise to uh, Smiley and dumps him. And he goes on to do great things with all his friends, including this Native American character called Eagle Free, which he makes the head of the FBI. <laughs> so there's all these hippies this is in the White House. Lame, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and they battle all the normal presidential problems, but they also fight legless vampires, werewolves, the great, 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 great grandnephew of George Washington, and an evil chess player. Look, I think Checker's back. <laughs> anyway, it's surprising this only lasted four issues. <laughs> <laughs> so five actually because the fifth one came out and they had this comic called Canceled Comics Cavalcade where they just shove in the last issues of a club. They, 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 he battled his arch enemy, the filibuster? <laughs> yes, no, well maybe. I have to look at the last one. Anyway, though, he didn't die either. He's kind of like asbestos girl. He made guest appearances all over the DC universe as time went on. And... Um, Usually it was a slightly mutated character of him, not exactly him, but he ended up in Neil Gaiman's Sandman series, and his latest incarnation of the Prez, it came in, in 2015, and they had a comic about Beth Ross was a teenage girl that was elected to the White House via Twitter in the year 2036. It's so, it's so mad to me, I think that's lame. It's so crazy that they have all the you know, all the new things. On, on, my, on my next one, they have new things like Twitter and stuff as oh, well. Well, let's hear it. So my that's number two. two is, I think, the lamest character maybe possibly ever made. Oh, my gosh, you're challenging one. What is it? It is... His name is Hindsight Boy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who and or what is Hindsight Boy? And his real name is Carlton Lafroige. And he's a little bit of a computer nerd, expert slash, and, and, and net surfer extraordinary. And he has the power of, you guessed it, Hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> he's a member of the New Warriors. And he first made, he first made an appearance in the New Warriors number 37. And he's basically like the roommate or neighbor of one of the real superheroes. Yeah. And he discovers his identity and they have to kill him or slash black blackmails. Not really, but yeah, exactly. And so he he makes a suit for himself and he calls himself Hindsight Boy, (laughs) and is literal literally his only ability besides a little bit of computer hacking and and that kind of thing is his ability to assess events that have already occurred. And annoyingly tell everyone how they could have done better. <laughs> <laughs> so he said he apparently has the same superhuman ability as your mom. <laughs> Anyways, it turns out he's a turncoat. Really? <laughs> yes. Has he become because, a villain? So what happens is, not a villain, but what happens is the new warriors in one of the later issues, which is what I'm talking about, Twitter, they go on a reality show. <laughs> and oh my gosh. and I, I the particulars are unknown to me, but they they have to fight a supervillain, and in doing so, they cause him to implode, and or to explode rather, and it wipes out half of the team in real life and a bunch of a town. Oh, and so everybody's super pissed at the new warriors, and this computer, you know, hindsight gets really ashamed and, and angry, and he starts. Uh, 
outing all the all the identities on t on on the internet and and also uh having a uh you know a site that says we need to get rid of them and like he's he's instigating violence against them like you know to kill them and stuff and uh anyways who how they get they they need to they have that stop so they're trying to you know find it and, they, and they, the person that gives them the lead of all people is iron man oh. <laughs> It's your, it's your boy hindsight <laughs> having some foresight for what. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, super lame, and and, and then they made <laughs> they turned him into an a-hole. <laughs> does he does he become a villain, or how they get rid of him? No, they they actually just force him to stop, and he goes he goes away. And and I think he's still making appearances a little bit, like as a hacker once. You know, oh they, my gosh, still to this day. But they never throw anybody but away. He lost his he lost his his power of hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe it, it told him that a hindsight of he shouldn't have done that. Yeah, and he had to wander away. He never said if he learned any lessons from his hindsight, oh. but he definitely could. We can wag a finger. Yeah. All right, now we come to number one, and and I don't know that that may be lamer than number one. But anyway, uh, what could be possibly number one after all this lameness? Well, it's a hero that's not just unfortunate in himself, but also comes from a long line of lameness. And the story's a little convoluted, but anyway, here it goes. So we got to travel back first to the Golden Age in the 30s to Captain Marvel, the late 30s. Captain Marvel, you know, he's the Shazam guy from Shazam Isis Hour in the 70s. Anyway, he was a superhero that Foss's Comics put out as an answer to Superman. And he was rolled out in early 1940. And his alter ego was Billy Batson, who only had to say the words Shazam to become super-powered. And... Uh, and Shazam, it was an acronym for Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. And uh, those were the immortal elders, supposedly. So he became very popular. In fact, in 1941, he became the first comic book character to go to the movies. He was in a Republic serial. Superman hadn't even come out. And for a time, he outsold Superman. <laughs> so, of course, they were pissed off <laughs> over at DC. So... Uh, Eventually, they sued Fawcett, saying they'd ripped him off. And this went on for a long time because it, it, it didn't even come to any kind of settlement till 1950. This guy named Jug, uh, Judge August Hand, he ruled that Captain Marvel did infringe on the DC copyright. And, you know, I could see why, because they had witnesses that said that the, the head guys told their employees, Let, give me a Superman character, but just make his alter ego a kid. <laughs> And so they had that to go with. So That's anyway, every movie ever made, man. Well, I know. I don't know how the copyright laws are today, but I guess it depends how much money you got to fight it. But anyway, it still went to another appeal in 1954. The brother of Judge August ruled on it. His name was Judge Learned Hand, of all things. Anyway, he agreed with the previous trial court. But before they got to the penalty phase, Fawcett settled out of court, and he had, they had to pay to DC, but they also stopped publishing any comics except for Dennis the Menace. They were allowed to keep that. So anyway, what this is, does this have to do with Miracle Man? Well, I'll tell you, because that's what we're talking about here is Miracle Man. Yeah. Captain Marvel wasn't just popular in the States. He was popular in the whole world, and uh, especially in England. 
In fact, he was the best-selling comic by L. Miller and Sons. They were the publisher. They had the rights to reprint the um, magazines in England. And, well, they weren't going to let all this money go to waste when they when they lost Captain Marvel. So um, they went to writer, um, artist, Mick Angelo, of all the names, and they told him, replace Captain Marvel. So that's what he did. He came up with Marvel Man. And he was basically Captain Marvel. But his magic word was Komoda. And his buddies Was were, it Miracle Man or Marvel Man? No, this is this one was... was uh, Marvel Man. Okay. He's coming up. <laughs> He's coming up. I'm, I'm trying to follow this, Frank. <laughs> so so his um, um, Marvel Man, his buddies were, uh, instead of uh, Captain Marvel Jr. and Mary Marvel, they were Young Marvel Man and Kid Marvel Man. <sighs> and Marvel Man took off. In fact, it became Britain's most loved and longest running superhero. So Til, Till this day, huh? Well, you know, it ended no, already. But, I mean, but yeah, yeah he, with all their superheroes. Because Marvel Man did so well, Angelo came out with another similar character, and he was called Captain Universe, the Super Marvel. And he looked like Captain Marvel, too, except his power word was Galap. Galileo, Archimedes, Leonardo, Aristotle, and Pythagoras. <laughs> and <laughs> pathetic. Yes. Well, in 52, a Spanish publisher, Editorial Firma, they wanted to get on this action, so they contacted Angelo and wanted him to oversee a Spanish-language hero. And it was going to be Super Hombre, which just so happens to be the Mexican's market name for Superman, of course. So, um, I don't know if there was ever a lawsuit over that one. But anyway, Super Hombre did well, too. So at this point, Angelo felt pretty confident, so he thought, I'm, I'm going to leave this place and start my own company. So he left Miller in 1960, and he created another knockoff which was called captain miracle and his magic word was el karim which wasn't an acronym for anything it was just miracle backwards <laughs> so anyway the new comic series uh, was just a redrawing of old marvel man's stories he just redrew them with the same stories basically holy crap and and he gave him a new suit um but uh, michelangelo wasn't done yet in 1965 and we finally arrived. He came up with Miracle Man. Holy the Superman of unlimited power. miracle we got here. <laughs> miracle Man's suit was pretty much like Super Ombre, instead of a, but instead of a bullseye in his chest, he had some kind of this uh, sun uh, disc on it. And that's what Miracle Man's secret word was. It was sun disc. He would just say sun disc, and he would become uh, Miracle Man. <laughs> So, well, crap, all these guys were thwarted by ball gags, man. <laughs> what the hell's going on? <laughs> and, and the other thing that he was different from Super Ombre was that Miracle Man had a sometimes sidekick that was a goat. <laughs> so, <laughs> I bet he so did. <laughs> for just for his sidekick and for being a copy of a copy who was a copy of a character that copied Superman, Miracle Man is our number one lamest superhero. And there's a postscript, both. Uh, Captain Marvel and Marvel Man has since been uh, tried to be resurrected. And Marvel Man, when it was brought now into the U.S., was called Miracle Man. <laughs> so we have the complete uh, circle of lameness. So there you have it, the lamest of the lame. But at least you can't say that they're mediocre. 
We got a lot of our information tonight from this great book called The League of Regrettable Superheroes by John Morris. And that's available at Amazon and most bookstores, God bless them, right now. And that's it. Joe, like old time, you sing a song for Mama. Oh, see? no, Mom, not in front of all oh. these people. Joe, you sing it for Mama. <laughs> in Napoli, where love is king, when boy meets girl, is what they sing. <laughs> When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. Bells will ring, ting-a-ling-a-ling, ting-a-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing Vita Bella. Bravo, John! Hearts will play, tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay, like a gay darandella. Lucky fella. When the stars make you drool, just like pasta basil, that's amore. When you dance down the street with a cloud at your feet, you're in love. When you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming, signora. Mama! Scusin' me, but you see back in old Napoli, that's amore. If you still kiss your girl after garlic and oil, that's amore. That's amore. If you call her your pet, though she's shaped like spaghetti, that's amore. That's amore. Bells will ring. ting a ling a ling ting a ling a ling Sing Vita Bella Vita Bella, Vita Bella Hearts will play Tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay Like a gay darandella Arantella When the stars make you drool Just like a pasta fazool That's amore That's amore When you dance down the street With a cloud at your feet You're in love You're in love When you in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming. Excuse me, but you see back in old Napoli. That's a worry. Tutte quante cantate, everybody sing. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. That's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. That's amore. When you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming. Eh, signore, Here's a phantom record from back in the 1970s. Be sure to listen for the giant ant sound effects from the 1950s movie Them scattered heedlessly around the record. 
the Phantom. Is he legend? In the tropical seas and jungles around the Indian Ocean, they say there is a place called Eden, a jungle hideaway where a strange man lives and where his father and his father before him lived. He is called by the natives the Ghost Who Walks. Some call him the Phantom, but all know him to be the sworn enemy of evil. Here is the story of The Astronaut and the Pirates, an adventure of The Phantom. In his jungle retreat, The Phantom and his native friend, Guran, listened to the radio. In case you've just tuned in, we're in the final countdown of what is hoped will be mankind's first orbit around the moon. In these last few seconds before blastoff, all stages are go. Colonel Nelson, strapped inside his rocket, is all set. The count is now seven, six, five, four, three. What a feeling it must two. be, Egoran. Who wants to go to the moon? A perfect liftoff, and everything is going as planned. The astronaut's capsule is now separated and is speeding into its first orbit. The idea of exploring space doesn't excite you, Goran? I like this place. If the rest of the world was like this place, we'd be in good shape, wouldn't we? Meanwhile, not very far from the Phantom's Isle of Eden, a modern-day pirate ship cruises into an uncharted tropical lagoon. Steady as she goes. Aye, aye, sir. Stop both engines. Aye, sir. Drop anchor. Drop anchor, you swaps. Aye, aye, sir. It's a real thick jungle over there, Captain. No sign of life, though, eh? But you can never be sure, sir. Well, we'll go ashore in the small boat and take a look around. This might make a good hideaway for us. Captain Scrag, you see something? I must have a touch of the sun. Look along the beach. Wait, it's crazy. I mean, I, I think I'm seeing a lion playing with an antelope. That don't make any kind of sense. But why, glory, that's what we're looking at, Captain. I don't like this. It's not natural. Over to the right, Captain. Another antelope standing there looking at us. It's not even scared. You've got your rifle. Shoot it. We'll have roast antelope for supper. Take good aim, Connor. Don't miss. I won't miss. What in tarnation? Back to the ship. We're surrounded by savages. It happened in a split second. As the pirate mate took aim with his rifle, something struck the rifle. A dart from a native blowgun and a score of pygmies watched the two pirates row back to the steamer. Meantime, not too far away, the Phantom was listening to his radio. There is no question about the astronaut's successful orbit of the moon. We know he has circled it, but we have lost radio contact with him. All tracking stations around the world are trying to make contact with Colonel Nelson. What do you think has happened? Let's hope it's nothing serious. Ladies and gentlemen, a report from the tracking station in northern Australia. Colonel Nelson's capsule was hit by a meteor in space. There is no further word as yet. Well, they had here, too. Yes, the drums. A message for you from the pygmies. Strangers with guns. Is that what you make out? Some men from a ship with guns. Well, we don't want any men with guns in this part of the world. I'll get on over there. You stay with the radio. Mm -hmm. 
mounted on his magnificent white horse, Hero, the Phantom races along jungle trails toward the village of his pygmy friends. Meantime, Scrag, the pirate chief, sits in his smoky cabin with his henchman, Connor. They are listening to the end of a radio broadcast. As the whole world waits in suspense, we can only hope that the astronaut in his space capsule will somehow, somewhere, make his re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Turn that thing off. Those drums are still at it, Captain. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're too popular. We'd be crazy to go ashore again. Uh, let's go up on deck and get some air. Meantime, concealed by jungle foliage, the Phantom and the Pygmy Chief witness a startling thing. By all that's wonderful. What is that thing come down from sky? A parachute. A parachute lowering a space capsule. He's safe. Colonel Nelson, safe. That thing come down near pirate ship. Siwawa, this is very important. We need a war canoe. Contact the Wambisi. Tell them to get here as fast as possible with a war canoe. The capsule's splashing down now. Hurry, Siwawa. It's him, the astronaut. Connor, what a stroke of luck. What a bonanza for us. Look, the capsule port door is opening. That's him. Connor, by glory, we've got ourselves a fortune. Lower a boat and get him aboard, and then haul that capsule aboard. Aye, aye, sir. Welcome, Colonel Nelson. Welcome aboard. Sit down and make yourself comfortable. Yeah, sure. Sit down, Connor. Thanks. I can tell you this, I'm glad I came down inside of you fellows. Oh, so are we, Colonel. Right, Connor? Right? Oh, right, Captain Scrag. Well, uh, <laughs> me and my first mate here, we, uh, we were just wondering how much the first man to go around the moon and back would fetch in the open market. What? You have a lot of valuable information and a lot of very valuable data inside that capsule. Colonel? You're a living gold mine. <laughs> Why, you pair of unscrupulous... Get him, Connor! <laughs> Better tie our guest up, Connor, before he comes to. Ashore in the jungle, the Phantom waits impatiently for the arrival of the Wambizi war canoe. He has already guessed what use the pirates will make of their astronaut prisoner watches helplessly as he sees the pirate ship moving slowly out to sea. What's your course, Mr. Connor? East by east to Point North, Captain. Well, that'll do it. Steady as she goes. Steady she is, sir. Well, Captain, you'll be taking a big risk. No risk. <laughs> Nobody's going to arrest me. Not while we hold that astronaut guy. Oh, you got nerve, Captain. Well, they call me the scourge of these seas, don't they? It takes nerve to get a reputation like that, don't it? What are we doing? Only eight knots, Captain. The engines need repairing. Well, the mainland's not far. We should sight Malagana by 4 a.m. Meantime, the Wambizi war canoe finally arrives at the Pygmy village. The Phantom and the Pygmy chief Sawawa get into the big craft, and the canoe is paddled swiftly out into the tropical night and eastward toward Malagana the nearest port. Why you think this pirate fellow go to Malagana? He's going to ransom the astronaut. Chances are he'll contact the nearest American consul. And judging by the slowness of that pirate ship, it won't get there much before we do. Towards dawn, in the office of the American consul at Malagana. Yes, come in. 
Excuse me, sir, there's a man here. He claims he has news of Colonel Nelson. I, uh, I have an idea he means it. I think he's Captain Scragg, the pirate. He has the audacity to come here. Send him in, and do not notify the police. Not yet. Very wise man, that's what you are, Mr. American Consul. Tell this fellow to beat it. Leave us alone, Roberts. All right, Scragg. What's on your mind? Well, uh, I've got this astronaut fellow all trussed up like a turkey. You mean Colonel Nelson? Where? Aboard your ship? Where's your ship? My ship won't be found in a hurry, and I wouldn't try finding it if you want this astronaut alive. Where's your proof that you do have the astronaut? Yeah. This is his helmet. It's got his name on it. So this is the deal. Ten million dollars. I'll give you 12 hours to get that much money together. And I'll be back in just 12 hours. And don't have anybody follow me. Aboard the Wambizi War Canoe, the Phantom scans the shoreline of Malagana. The canoe glides almost silently through the smooth waters of the purple dawn. Scrag would anchor somewhere along here. Dead Man Creek, maybe. That's a beam of us. Tell the Wambisi to head for the creek. Amayohuna. The Wambisi war canoe, concealed behind jungle vegetation growing in the water close to the shore of the hidden creek, is now motionless. The Wambisi warriors stare toward the pirate ship anchored 200 yards away. The pygmy chief Sawawa and the phantom sit there in the canoe, watching the dirty hulk of the pirate ship. There's no use trying to run this canoe over there. We'd be seen. There'd be gunplay. Many shark in water. I know. The only way to get aboard that ship is to swim. Sharks pretty hungry in morning. That's why I'm going alone. That's why I go with you. So why are you a good fellow? That's why I go with you. No, not this time. This time, like all time, I go with you. Very well. Stay close to me. And carry your knife in your teeth. Come on. shark-infested waters seem to come alive on one side of the two swimmers, and at least a dozen man-eating sharks cut through the water to attack the phantom and Sawawa. The phantom braced himself, gripping his knife. Leave the first one to me. Look out! The phantom and the leading shark were locked in a death struggle. Strangely, the other sharks held back as if to await the outcome. Now there was blood on the surface of the water, and the sharks moved in a little closer, and then, as though by signal, they closed in on their prey, fighting each other to get their teeth into their dead comrade. Swiftly, the Phantom and Sawawa swam away from the grisly scene, toward the pirate ship. You still great shark fighter. Save your breath. There may be others. Well, I don't think anybody aboard has seen us. See the anchor chain? Yes. We can climb up the chain. Try not to make any sound. But let's get aboard quickly. Come on. What do you think, Colonel? Ten million dollars. That's a pretty penny. A man could retire with just half that, couldn't he? <laughs> Come on, Colonel. Answer the captain. You're supposed to be an officer and a gentleman. You're supposed to be polite. Especially seeing you're some kind of hero going around the moon the way you did. Trouble is, Colonel, if you never show up, nobody's going to believe you did it. Say something, you swab. 
He thinks he's too good to talk to us, Captain. I'm not so sure he'll ever get back alive, even when we get the money for him. Hey, look, we're being boarded! What's going on on deck? Get hold of them and bring them to me. Mr. Connor, go see what's going on. Aye, Captain! Suwawa the pygmy, possessing the strength of a tiger plus a few tricks, had already accounted for two of the pirates. The Phantom, with the strength of ten world champions, pitted himself against seven of the crew until one by one, they either dropped unconscious or fled into hiding. As the first mate, Connor, waving a gun, rushed in. Hey, what are you, some comic opera character? <laughs> I'll blast you off you... Let go of me, Swab. Drop that gun or I'll okay, break you. Okay, okay. I, I, I didn't mean any harm, mister. Now where's the astronaut? I, Speak up. Uh, amidships, in the captain's cabin. Siwawa, pick up this fellow's gun and keep an eye on things. It's too quiet. What's happened? I think you're in trouble, Scrag. Shut up! You get this. If I'm in trouble, so are you. You're my hostage, so keep that in mind, unless you want a bullet. What in the name of... Hold it, whoever you are. Hold her on. Drop that gun. I'll drop you, you... Colonel Nelson, I presume? Yes, sir. And I'm deeply in your debt, whoever you are. Who I am is not important. So let's get you untied and put you ashore. You will have to notify the authorities about this pirate ship. But who are you? Who was he? In the jungle, they called him the Ghost Who Walks. Others called him the Phantom. And when a United States destroyer reached the pirate ship, and even as radio was telling the world, the American astronaut has been found. It is now confirmed that Colonel Nelson, the first man to orbit the moon, that the American hero had been rescued. A big Wambezi war canoe was taking the Phantom back to his own jungle paradise where men and animals had, through the generations, learned to live in peace with each other. Last May, my mom and I went on a road trip to the Four Corners area. Mainly it was to visit Mesa Verde, a spectacular place neither one of us had ever been before. But like any good road trip, there was plenty of exploring on the way there and back. One of my favorite surprises along the way was a repurposed bowling alley on the edge of Santa Fe, the Meow Wolf Complex. Within the 20,000 square feet of the gutted Silva Lanes, an interactive adventure had been created. A performance art piece where the visitors are part of the act. It's colorful, playful, mysterious, kind of awe-inspiring, and not a little bit disturbing. As you can tell, it's hard to explain. So we're all going to just have to take a visit. That's right, it's time for an audio tour. So come along. It's a high desert spring evening, with the big sky above beginning to cool. Soon it will purple and rose its way into night. We've left historical downtown Santa Fe and made our way to the more modern outskirts. You can still tell that you're in the city, though. The McDonald's looks like an adobe hacienda, but nothing looks older than 60 years. 
Soon we arrive at our destination, 1352 Rufina Circle, just off the 14 on its way to Albuquerque. Well, we just pur pulled into Meow Wolf, which is a permanent, semi-permanent anyway, installation. What we have is a rust red robot <laughs> and a giant spider. What is that over there? Like a coyote? We just took my mom's picture in front of the giant Meow Wolf robot. It's holding a flower. And the Meow Wolf sign is a, on a giant bowling ball. It's a giant bowling pin, actually. A remnant of the Silver Lanes bowling alley we talked about earlier. It's white with colorful letters spelling out Meow Wolf. Meow Wolf is an art collective. They are the group responsible for the installation we're about to enter. But it wasn't their first. They began experimenting back in 2008 with room-size exhibits and eventually started making interactive installations and then a giant multi-room ship 70 by 200 feet back in 2011. Cut to 2014 when writer and member of Miawa, Vince Kodlubek, decided that this old Silver Lanes would be a perfect place for a permanent exhibit. He got some key Meow Wolf guys together and visited his old boss, George R.R. R. Martin. That's right, the Game of Thrones Martin. They told Martin about their plan. George was interested and bought the old bowling alley. And after getting loads more money from other people, the Meow Wolf team built the permanent exhibit by 2016. It was called the House of Eternal Return. Anyway, we bought our tickets <laughs> Look at that dragon kite. Hi. Two, please. What? No, no. Oxnard, California. Can I interest you in the Chromadev classes? Of course. Cool. And just to let you know, we are interactive exploratory, which means there are no maps, no guides. Once inside, you make your own way. Interactivity means you're welcome to pick stuff up, play with it, touch it. All I ask is that you're gentle. Some of it is oh, kind of yeah. fragile. And as far as rules, there's no food, gum, or drinks allowed in the space. Water bottle. Oh, yeah. Time. And it's going to be 49.99. Okay. And entered the introduction room, a dark place where a weird figure spoke to us from a screen.
We came out into what looked like a side yard of a two-story Victorian home, complete with lawn, fence, and gardens. The house loomed above us, all of its lights on, the night sky beyond its purple-pink roof. Around us were the sounds and smells of a suburban Mendocino evening. My mom and I were told to inspect everything, so we went through the mailbox, finding letters and a postcard. Supposedly, the house had a story behind it. Part of the fun was to discover what the story was. It belonged to the Selig family, and there was a death in that family. What's more, something that happened to the house that caused time and space to rip open. And so there are passages that reach out from the house and lead to other dimensions. We walked up into the yellow porch and went inside. This is beyond here, there's no dragons. <laughs> there be no dragons. What? There's so great. Oh, I can't. <laughs> They're in the refrigerator! It's like a whole house with all the furniture and oh look at the melted chandelier. Look at the picture. Oh yeah, the mirror. There's weird things. Light is dimmed, weird noises come around everywhere. This house is a weird place. 1,800 square feet of weird. And you can explore its inhabitants' lives. Read their journals, flip through their photo albums, go through their drawers, or on their computer, or whatever you want. But the house is just the beginning. And now there's a strange face in the mirror. <laughs> I don't know what the heck that footage is of tattoos and flesh heads. <laughs> we're going in, we opened the refrigerator, and now we're walking into it and down a white hallway. <laughs> The refrigerator door, only one of the many portals, leads down a curving whiteness into what? A sort of dimensional travel port leading to other worlds. Portals, Bermuda, your getaway to the multiverse. <laughs> it's, it's a hologram. You can pick different universes to go to. <laughs> Here's all the different portals you go to. Look at this one. <laughs> this weird furry creature standing to the ceiling. Like ice here all around us and little portholes looking on to the weird planet where they're supposed to be. Oh yeah, what am I doing? I'm not taking pictures. 
Let's go into the next portal. <laughs> Press our hand on the plate. The forest was, what can I say, beautiful, disturbing. It was light and darkness and fluorescence. Twisted, distorted trunks with glowing fungi that changed colors and played tones when they were touched. Branches with flower-like leaves that reached out of sight. Below, grass and rock, and a carpety sort of seabed area. There were stairs with railings winding up around the tree trunks and up into tree houses. But it was more. Too much to say. Lights. It is crazy. We're walking out now into like a jungly, foresty thing with moss. There was someone coming that way. It's <laughs> got tree branches and Spanish moss. Go by those glowing. Fungus. Oh my gosh, how do you describe this? Giant spider of the wall. <laughs> Look, well, this is like a sea bottom. Like the sea floor here on this one section. And look up above. It's like glowing paper lanterns, but they look like cocoons, maybe. I think it's a tree house up there or something. Yeah, let's go up there. We're going to walk up the tree house with the glowing fungus on the side of the walls. We're walking up the staircase. Now this tree swirls around it. Oh my gosh. Can you get in there? Well, I, I'll fit, but <laughs> I'm crawling on my hands and knees <laughs> through this metal thing too. We're coming up. There's couches, all kinds of crazy stuff. Oh man. This is so crazy. This is indescribable. This looks like an Airstream trailer up here on this tree. Looks like an Airstream trailer on this tree. This is the upstairs of the house. I think, oh, I don't even know what that, oh, but there's weird crystals going that way. Let's go in the bedroom. Now we walked into the back and top floor of the house. No, I don't. It's on. <laughs> this Barbie house with all these posters on the wall and no faces on them. It's all from Dynamite Magazine and Pepsi's. <laughs> this is cuckoo. Let's see if we go... What is the rest of upstairs? I don't know how to get to some of those other places up there. 
goes, there's that regular house again. <laughs> Look at the bed moves, <laughs> like it's possessed. The chamber was an ice cave that glowed colors that slowly changed. We entered from above, downstairs, but the cave could be entered through other tunnels and even from the fireplace in the Victorian house. There were ice worms chewing through the roof of the cave and a mastodon skeleton jutting out from the cave walls. The fossil bones glowed too and changed colors, the teeth always being different from the rest. A person could walk into the ribs and play them with mallets like marimbas. Several people did when we were there. Oh, that little grill? Here, we'll walk down into the ice palace now. <laughs> this is great. Pink stairs. All these holes. This would be a perfect house for everybody. Yeah. Look out there, you see an ice tree from this side. Here, Mom, I'll take your picture next to the mammoth. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Here, there you go. So we go this way. <laughs> this is. Now it's turning, it was pink, and now that. It's orange with green teeth. A mammoth skeleton. Now we're coming up here. It looks like a space probe that has crashed. Oh, run by a bicycle. Some kind of mechanical sphere we could see through. Look at this forest. This is where you put your glasses on, Mom. The chroma depth. When you walk through. <laughs> it's a forest of black white planted trees. And you put the chroma depth. Uh, look, we're like underwater because there's a deep sea diver. giant sucker fish. Oh, that's bad out to the front again. So we'll go back to the, f look at the fish above you. So we're underwater. And all the dots and everything seem like they're rising up off the floor. They have all these trees painted black like colors. And it's meant to be like sea weed or some kind of fish above you. And you put these chromodeps. Okay. Look at that. Is that a horse in there? 
Look at these water fountains. They're plexiglass cylinders with the water running straight up in bubbles and then running off the top. And these fluorescent lily pads. All right, watch out for this, Mom. There's flashing lights in here. <laughs> Look at this place. <laughs> like stained glass creatures. Press the eyes on these animals. Mom and I entered the sound room. Its center had a pillar with a crystalline hand at its top. On the walls were the heads of faceted stained glass abstract animals. From the corners of the room, you could manipulate sound from the switches on the flat heads of animal statues. It could get out of hand. Now we're going down the hallway with a bunch of TVs on all sides of us. This. Now we're to this whole other <laughs> outdoor of a ramshackle house. Maybe it's time to take a break and talk about the construction of this place. It took over 200 people to build this installation. There was the Meow Wolf group, of course, but also architects, designers, engineers, electricians, carpenters, not to mention a slew of volunteers. Even before all this happened, there were the people who developed 200 hours of narrative content. Later, this was placed in fake magazines, letters, postcards, diary entries, computer posts, you name it. And hours of video content were also created, 
for all the screens throughout the building. It was quite an ordeal. Looks like a whole thing. Choose a door, Mom. Pick a door. I mean, just go as if you're going to open it. Oh, it does. <laughs> Look at that. That is so bizarre. They have a strobe light. Must be spinning and and uh oh, you never get this on this. It's people falling. Okay. And I think it spins, you know, like what do they call those kinetoscopes with they and they's falling and then goes into the refrigerator at the bottom. Who knows? Now we're going inside that looks like a a windmill or a tank house. Oh with wood shingles. We get in the middle, and there is, look at, out the window, there's a movie of a guy recording sounds in a forest. <laughs> yes. Let's go upstairs, or do you want to go out that way first? It doesn't matter. No, I don't know. Let's go up here. <laughs> no, we haven't. That's to those other places we haven't seen. Lots of lean on, fluorescent lights, fluorescent colors. Now we're going up the stairs again. Here's a miniature futuristic city up here, or temple. That's that couch. Somebody was sitting there earlier. Everything here is black and white and cartoon looking. There's a cake. <laughs> it's like a black and white cartoon room. Weird face on the door. You can just sit in here. Look at the tongue coming out of the sink. Oh, yeah. Look at the out the windows cartoon too. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know. 
this is the swirling furniture. It looks like it got picked up by a tornado. There's a couch on top. The truck. Oh, that's what it is. This is a bus sticking up straight. Look at. Oh, we haven't been in here. What's this? All these pipes and toilet flushers and lights. <laughs> it's... Yeah. There's a bus sticking straight up, just front part of it. It's this way. Look at that house. It's the tops of telephone poles, <laughs> and then cuts <laughs> chandelier. I mean, uh, mirror ball. But it's a bowling ball, bowling pin. Excuse me. With strings of lights on it. One comes up from the floor. One is just hanging. So we'll go back the way we came and then go that other direction. This is definitely a drug trip. Only if a drug trip was like this, it'd be good. This is. <laughs> now we're going back downstairs again, where all the floor is black and white black lines or white lines depending on what you say going all these geometric shapes everywhere and fluorescent posts going up that's where we're passing those telephone poles they're floating all right <laughs> it's all these crazy movies going on you could stop and watch crazy beetle thing's gonna get loose. Well, this is actually the dark room. Maybe the, oh, man, it stinks. Oh, yeah. There's those lights again. on the top. There's all these. There's a couch on one side. And this slender a center glowing orb and then there's these all the little spotlights look at making images on the floor and then hundreds of them moving in different directions now the circles are coming together all with this very stinky smell in here 
<laughs> Look at the shit. Now the circles are growing up the side of the wall. <laughs> We're going to get hypnotized. We're going to get out of here. Let's go back the way we came. Anything back there? Mom found a new hole down here. What the heck? Mom discovered this weird room with fabric. There's carpet on the chairs and on the on, on the walls. And look at that light right there. There's a water tank. There's bubbles going up into it. Let's see if this is the exit to leave. Oh, we didn't even see that. Back to the telephone poles. Look at this is fabric, Mom. And look, when you do this. Makes different light shapes. I think mom's gonna need a detox after this. What is this? This is a deer skull with horns and then a body made out of macrame, or what is that? Afghan. Afghan. Now we're back out to the forest again. Oh, these trees have eyes. I didn't notice that before. This is the video game room. <laughs> Look at that tree. Growing out of the middle, it's like a vine of fake flowers growing up into the ceiling. What? Oh, first, let's play the fungus. When you touch them, I saw someone doing this. You touch it, the light change. <laughs> you have to hit them hard. Yes, let's go out that way. Mom's discovering all these secret places. We saw it from the other side. And now we have Precambrian Forest with giant dragonfly. <laughs> this is the best thing ever. Let's climb over the carpet. This is back into that trailer. Everything connects to the other thing. There were also secret urban alleyways lined with shadow box of Ripley exhibits, relief sculptures of strange godlike heads. A slide out into the cosmos you entered through a front loading washing machine. So many things. This man is going down that washing machine. 
sliding down. How much space is down there? <laughs> I'm glad I didn't do that. <laughs> this was great. I think we've seen. Who knows if we saw it all? No. As much as our sanity can take. Gargoyles, look at that thing. It's coming out of the trash can, it's all the trash. It's all the trash. Galvanized coming out. Spiraling out of the trash can. There's weird gargoyles. spiraling galvanized trash rising into the faux night sky and headed out the egress. I'm not sure if I saw it all. I know I didn't comprehend it all. But it was great, and I recommend it to anyone who even gets close to Santa Fe. If that's just too far for you, well, they're opening another complex, all new with new ideas, out in Las Vegas by 2019, and another one in the Denver, Colorado area in 2020. Oh yeah, by the way, the group got their name by putting random words into two hats and then picking out random combinations. The combo they liked best was Meow Wolf. Yeah, it doesn't just sound like they picked it out of a hat. You say friends, and I'll whistle. You say friends, and I'll whistle. I'll whistle, you say friends. No, you say friends, and I'll whistle. No, no, you whistle, I'll say friends. No, no, you say friends, and I'll whistle. Yeah, you whistle, I'll say friends. Um, No, no, you say friends and I'll whistle. With The Darkest Hour film up for some Oscars, and with the coming out of Churchill and Dunkirk, not to mention Winston's appearance in the Crown TV drama, we thought it would be appropriate to have a speech by Neville Chamberlain. So here it is. There's only two things... I want to say, first of all, I've received an immense number of letters during all these anxious times, and so has my wife. Letters of support and approval 
and gratitude. And I can't tell you what an encouragement that has been to me. I want to thank the British people for what they have done. And next, and next I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We, the German Führer and Chancellor and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. We are resolved that the method of consultation shall be the method adopted to deal with any other questions that may concern our two countries, and we are determined to continue our efforts to remove possible sources of difference and thus to contribute to assure the peace of Europe. The Roaring Land Calypso Foundation would like to wish Trinidad and Tobago a happy Valentine's. We would like to take this opportunity to bring you Calypso Valentine's from the late 1930s. Our first selection is by Sagalba singing The Glutton. Now recently around the city, I went strolling with a young lady. Now recently around the city, I went strolling with a young lady. Into a restaurant we both went, and you can judge my great amazement. Cause the food that she crammed, it's hard to understand, she's an ordinary human. Imagine an up-to-date young lady, clean enough to beef and rice easily. Friends and after that immediately, a soup, a sandwich and a cup of tea. And believe she had the audacity to make me understand that she's still hungry. For she didn't hesitate, she ate another plate of potatoes and a beefsteak. Now some people, it's their delight to really wish they got a good appetite. Whether they are young or whether they are old, well, the appetite they bound to control. But this woman is a Bengal tiger, a glutton and an avaricious eater. Well, she had me in a jam with the food that she crammed, I couldn't pay the restaurant man. Now to see this young lady size and height, you wouldn't believe she got such an appetite. The different menu that she partake will give any human bad stomachache. 
I think her stomach must be ten miles wide With this other food that she put inside For she had me in a jam with the food that she crammed I couldn't pay the restaurant man Now you can believe that this Jedi Bell can eat like a big Egyptian camel. Tell me what you think of a girl like that, eating on her stomach still looking flat. I think she better see a doctor in time and let him operate on her intestines. For she's a bad specimen with a large abdomen, no human can be your friend. You want a Danish? No, I just ate. I've just eaten. Do you want, like I want some bread up front. Oh, bread up front? You want a sandwich? Have a Danish. You want a sandwich? Have a sandwich. Have a seat. Have a seat. Have a sandwich. Have a Danish. Well, that was kind of exhausting. Probably for all of you out there, too. So we'll end it here. But you're not getting away from Uncle Frank's one last thing. Frank? What do we have tonight? The great British singer and actor Frankie Vaughn, Mr. Moonlight himself, was born back on February the 3rd, 1928. He went on to climb the charts in Britain and act in films in both England and the U.S., including one with Marilyn Monroe. In his honor, we have a few of his performances and a news clip, followed by a Charles Darwin song in honor of his natal day, February 7th, 1812. Frankie Vaughan, with his wife Stella, comes home from America to find he's been named the show business personality of 1957 by the Variety Club, whose international European representative, C.J. Latter, breaks the glad news. Alongside the unofficial welcome, there's a special one from Anna Eagle, who will be starring with him in his new film to be made at Elstree. Fresh from taking America by storm, Frankie has a word at the airport with our interviewer, Bill Simon. Frankie, you've been voted Chairman of the Year. How do you feel about this? I feel very flattered, and uh, I really am terribly surprised to receive this award. Well, what are your plans for the future? Well, this is subject to confirmation because there's so many things going on at the moment, I don't know where to begin. At the same time, I have a film to make with Miss Anne Eagle, and then I, I'm looking forward to a summer engagement at Brighton. Where I take the palace show that was on in London recently down to Brighton for the summer season. Well, I hope, Frank, you never leave us for good. Oh, that, that could never happen. <laughs> You'll stay with us. Indeed, yes. La, 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 la.
Yes, but honey, now you ought to stay Long time no see Come home and sit upon my knee And we'll be like we used to be Long time no see You haven't changed You're as pretty as you were When I last saw you You haven't changed
Let me tell you a story about the man called Darwin. He sailed to Galapagos, the beagle he was in. Finches with special beaks and torna he did see. And from his observations came a brand new theory. Evolution, that is, the process of change. But just like all this, there is bad and there's good. He saw the finches' beaks were shaped just right to get their food. Those birds that got to eat lived on to reproduce and pass on genetic traits to a whole new brood. Inheritance, that is, survival of the fittest. So evolution takes a while for it to take effect, as in an elephant's nibble trunk or a giraffe's neck. Some changes made over time, like fossils do suggest, help organisms to survive and thrive where they fit best. It takes a while, millions of years. On the origin of species was Darwin's famous book. His theories have earned him a place in history's nook. The father of evolution is what he's been called. It earned him a long white beard and a head that's bald. You come back now, you hear?